My name is Tim, and I love Christmas carols. Honestly, I love all things Christmas. I've also been a church musician and worship leader for over 20 years. On this podcast, we're going to explore some of the most popular and beloved Christmas carols of all time. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Nope, not that. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. Definitely not that. I mean, the carols many of us grew up singing in church or hearing on TV specials and movies. If you take some time and slow down and really dig into those carols, you'll find profound hope and peace. And in small pockets of quiet this holiday season, you can find comfort and joy. This is Comfort and Joy. You've made it. Here we are at the end of our nine episodes of Comfort and Joy. Um, what a ride it's been. I hope you guys have found encouragement and hope and comfort and peace and some quiet along the way. It's definitely been a wild ride with everything we've gone through as a country in the last two months. And uh, I don't know where, when this episode ends, where we're going to be with everything. But I do know that the truth of God's scripture and the comfort and the hope and peace found in these songs is uh, timeless, is eternal. And so today I am excited to bring on our final guest, Dr. Christopher Roseborough is in his fifth year as assistant professor of music and director of choral activities at Howard Payne University in Brownwood, Texas, where he teaches early music history, choral conducting, choral methods, music technology, and directs the concert choir, university singers, and heritage, the HPU Chapel Band. Chris is also the worship pastor at Midtown Church in Brownwood. He has an equal love for a wide variety of musical genres and enjoys exploring and performing a wide range of worship styles from medieval to modern. He's married to his wife of 12 years, Danielle, and they have two children, Gwendolyn and Brent. You guys, hang on tight, because this is going to be a great conversation. Dr. Roseboro, I, I hope I can call you Chris since we've known each other for a long time. Yeah, please do. I've been Chris a lot longer than I've been Dr. Roseboro, so that's perfect. Awesome. Well, it's good to have you on here. I'm as, a, as your friend, I'm proud of you for the work you've accomplished as far as your your degrees and your um, academia. And so, but today we want to talk about, and um, this is going to be our final episode of the season because this hymn really fits ending the Christmas season, uh, you know? And so today's Christmas carol is... Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Sing it, Nat. Yes, Nat King Cole singing. We're going to talk about joy to the world today. Awesome. Uh, when I asked Dr. Roseboro or Chris, I'm going to have I'm going to have a hard time jumping back and forth on that. Uh, when I asked Chris what song he wanted to talk about, "Joy to the World" is what he chose, and so uh, I am super excited to to talk about that one today. So let me talk a little bit about the author of the text, sure. uh, and then we're going to hand it over to you to talk about the tune and kind of the the varied history that comes in that tune. So. 
Um, so this was written, the text was written by uh, the author of, of several other hymns, Marching to Zion, When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross, At the Cross. And as those are very standard hymns in most churches across the world today, if I told you that the guy who wrote those was kind of a rabble rouser, kind of a revolutionary, um, it might sound surprising. But even an article I found by the Gospel Coalition said that while he wasn't a heretic, he was a revolutionary. So the fact that they had to delineate, <laughs> no, not a heretic, but a revolutionary, means he really was on the, on the cutting edge of, of um, worship music of his time. Um, yeah. His dad, this guy's name is, I'm sorry, Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts is who wrote the, the text to this song uh, in 1719. Uh, and his dad was also uh, kind of a, a revolutionary, or he was a nonconformist. He had many issues with the Church of England. Uh, and so because of that, uh, Watts did not go to the standard school that most who were a part of the Church of England would go to. He went to an independent academy. Um, and there uh, he learned Greek, Hebrew, and Latin by the age of 20. Um, no Chris, how's your Greek, Hebrew, and Latin coming? Uh, L'chaim. <laughs> that's, that's all. And, that's the extent of it right there. That's, there you go. Yeah, I could say <laughs> Mazel Tov, and that's about what I got. Uh, but yes, yeah, so he was obviously very well studied, even by the time he hit, hit uh, double the second decade of his life. Mm -hmm. um, he'd written more than 750 hymns, uh, which is prolific. Now, I will say that over the course of this podcast, we've talked about Charles Wesley, uh, and, and he wrote over 6,500 hymns. So not the way- how, how do they line up right there? Yeah, I, <laughs> 750 is, is no slouch. Uh, I've right. written exactly zero hymns uh, that have been published. Uh, and, um, you know, so 750 is amazing, but yeah. when you put it up against 6,500, just these guys were, these guys were beasts is the way I would say it. they were absolute beasts when they wrote. Um, so he was considered outside the box mainly because at the time churches were only singing, um, their music based out of the book of Psalms. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's the only thing they, they pulled from to sing. And, and if it wasn't Psalms, then it wasn't sung. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense because. You know, coming out of a reformed church, um, you know, when you're when you're talking about the canonical hours, they're going to go through the Psalms um, right. in their entirety. And that's part of the, the worship aspect of, um, you know, the uh, pre-Reformation and into the post-Reformation churches. Psalms just remained a uh, pinnacle part of the liturgy. Absolutely. And not not to be faulted for that. I think Psalms are a great place to sing from. And in sure. fact, the, the carol Joy to the World was based on the Psalms. I think where Watts differ, he he had a, he had a differing opinion was that you could take a psalm and use it for inspiration rather than literal singing of the of the text. Sure, you know this um, this specific carol that we're talking about today comes from the Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament. So it's the whole collection title. Um, wow. So, okay. Um, so Watts takes um, the Psalms and then just is just a um, you know, exploration of the text, what it means to him, and kind of makes a paraphrase of what the psalm is. And that's where we get joy to the world. It's a paraphrase. And Psalm 98 is paraphrased in two parts. Uh, the first part is titled Praise for the Gospel to our Almighty Maker God, new honors be addressed. And then part two, entitled The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom, is where we get joy to the world, the Lord has come. Right. So it's his own paraphrase of those psalms. Which is where we can we can kind of talk about how this song, as much as it is a very um, a, a, a song we think of at Christmas, really has nothing to do with the first coming of Christ. 
Right, right. It's all about the second coming. It's all about, which is why we place this episode after Christmas, because really we're talking about looking forward to the second coming. And what's neat is that the first episode of this of this series started with Advent. We started talking about with come now long expected Jesus. And we're ending this season with talking about the second coming of Jesus, because that's where we are as believers in modern day. I have a quote from Watts that says, and I got this from uncdiscipleship.org. Um, speaking to the first paraphrase and the second paraphrase of Psalm 98, he says, in these two hymns I have formed out of the 98th Psalm, I fully expressed what I, what I esteem to be the first and chief sense of the Holy Scriptures. And so I think this is kind of an important psalm for Watts specifically from that quote. Yes. I'll read it again. In these two hymns I have formed out of the 98th Psalm, I have fully expressed what I esteem to be the first and chief sense of the Holy Scriptures. Yeah, and I think that's where he's coming from because as a young man, he was frustrated with the kind of his phrasing, his 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 actual quote is the dull indifference, the negligent and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of the whole assembly wow. while the psalm is on their lips. Wow. He was he was very disillusioned by the fact that we should be singing about and with joy to the Lord our creator, and yet there was dull indifference. It's a good thing that never happens today. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, says the worship pastor to the worship pastor. Right. We we experience this. And I think it's a, you know, it's a reminder for us to be encouraging. And I don't, you know, I've fallen into the trap of kind of um, demanding joy from people when they sing, which doesn't come off very well either. When you use like, right. you can't shame people into singing with joy. It doesn't, it doesn't quite work like that. Let's sing that from your heart this time. Sing yeah. It. To me, it's encouraging to know that this is a, a an observation and a battle against the natural condition of our hearts that's been going on for since the dawn of since the beginning of this of the faith exactly right that yeah. we begin by going wow and then over time we get our senses get dulled right and we right. we find ourselves with negligent and thoughtless air that sits upon our lips when we're singing to the creator and about the creator of the world right he spoke and planets were blasted into orbit and yet we sit here kind of with that. I love what um, uh, Watts' father said to him because Watts was kind of art complaining about it, right? And he was like, "Yeah, this is all going on. And yeah. Watts said, if you don't like it, do something about it. Like, I sure. love that. That's great parenting in my mind. Right. Like, don't my just... Pastor, my pastor says, know the right and do it. There it is. Yeah. Every single one of his emails. <laughs> that is abs- that's a great quote. You, if you see something that is, that is not uh, as it should be, then rather than just sit back and throw stones at it, which anybody can do, sure. uh, do something about it, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Not to, I don't know if it's okay to quote Michael Jackson, but you know, start with the man in the mirror. Um, <laughs> that's we're going to jump all over the place. Seventeen hundreds yeah. and the eighties. Uh, so yeah, so basically, I think I look at Watts and a lot of the things I read about him. He was basically the beginning of the what we would call the modern equivalent of the praise and worship movement that started in the nineties. Um, yeah, we can look at the whole Reformation that way. Yes, absolutely. It's, uh, it's just like, okay, this is not working. This is antiquated. We need something updated. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I'm on, the, I'm on the side of, well, we're worshiping God, period, no matter what style we're doing it in. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, if I'm going to sing um, uh, Loha Roser Blooming from the 14th century, uh, I can do the same exact tune and I can do it with my acoustic guitar and it changes style. It doesn't change the importance of the text. Exactly. And I think that is something we've discussed a lot on the show is 
There's some great arrangements to these carols out here that are instrumental. In fact, one of the ones I'll show is instrumental uh, this time, but it's the text that really sets the, the the message out. So if you like an instrumental version, man, more power to you, listen to it, but make sure you know what the text says because that's where the hope's found. That's exactly right. So, um, well, yeah. We, we, um, we can call Isaac Watts the father of English hymnody. Yes. Um, and we have another father figure in Lowell Mason. Um, now talk about who Lowell Mason was because there's a good chance that these folks aren't familiar to everybody. So you and I know Lowell Mason because of our training. Um, right. But let's talk a little bit about, about Mason. Yeah. So as, as Isaac Watts is the father of English hymnody, we call Lowell Mason the father of music education. Well, American music education anyway. Um, you know, he, there were a lot of other people operating, um, you know, in the, um, the early uh, 19th century um, in private schools as music teachers, but he was noted as the first public school music teacher. Didn't he um, put his own money into it? I mean, did, yeah, that read, yeah, he invested right. his own money into the program. Exactly right. So, I mean, he was all in, which is not too atypical from a teacher now, you know, we're, <laughs> right. we're um, oh, we need to do this for our classroom. There's no budget. Okay, I'll buy it. Um, yeah, that's very, well, he started it. There it is. Yeah. Luckily, now we get to write it off our taxes. Um, Yay. So we know um, that he was, uh, like many choir directors, bivocational. Um, you know, he was a banker. Um, he, uh, but really, music was a vital part of his life. I mean, he started music training by the time he was seven years old. Um, he was directing the village choir and teaching in singing schools by the time he was 16. Um, so just put that together. I mean, that's a very young age to be actually leading an area. Now he's, um, from the Boston area and a prolific thing in that part of the world was these singing schools. Um, so the idea of a singing school is that, um, and kind of simplistically put, um, you would have an itinerant music master that would come through your area. Uh, one, one of note would be William Billings. Yes. Uh, and this person would establish a community of singing and performance, uh, that could have some sort of longevity in the area. You can call him a musical missionary if you wanted to. Nice, um, yeah. And the teacher would travel to a new location and so on and so forth. Um, so uh, we see that um, uh, some different styles coming um, coming into the fold with the singing schools. One is a fuguing tune. Um, uh, Talk about what I, that means for just a minute, a fuguing tune? Yeah, so, you know, if we have an actual fugue um, in a, in a piece of music working on the counterpoint or how the uh, two independent lines work interdependently with one another, um, usually coming in at the interval of a fourth and a fifth. So you'd have one tune. You know, and these tunes would begin to operate independently and they would make up some fantastic composition. Um, uh, was that, was that come Christians joined to sing? It was, it just happened. I don't know. It just yeah. came into my head. Um, so the fuguing tune, um, one can hear a repeated phrase entering rapid succession in a variety of parts. So if we look at repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat. Now, if you're looking at the choral part, it's repeat the sound, repeat the sound, repeat the sound, repeat the sound. And that was Mason's arrangement, right? That's, that's exactly what Mason right. did to the arrangement, right? Exactly right. So he's, he's adopting this idea of, uh, you know, what we would learn in the singing school and possibly what he was teaching there in the 19th century. So 
Um, and, and would you call the senior schools? I mean, would you be able to say that like, it's obviously that's, it's not itinerant anymore, but a lot of larger towns and smaller towns for that matter have community choruses. So oh, that's exactly sure. That's exactly okay. right. Yeah. Uh, well, and you know, the singing school music has not, singing schools have not died away. You know, um, we we call them, they've more settled into the Southern gospel tradition. Okay. Um, you know, that still happens in the summer months. We still have uh, kind of the idea of the, um, like the, Carolinas have singing schools, the different style, um, but they, they will get together and do shape note singings, um, you know, because of this early singing schools, they were working on shape notes uh, where each, uh, each note head changes the shape and that would determine whether it's do, re, mi, fa, so, la, or ti. Yeah. If you go find older church music hymnals, you'll see those. And I think I remember as a kid going, why on earth are those shapes there? Because I'd yeah. seen notes, yeah. but nobody had taught me solfege based on shape notes. So that's, I learned that later. So right. for those of you listening, if you, if you ever find an old church hymnal uh, and you see shapes in it, that's actually pertaining to what note to sing and what it sounds like based on the key it's in. Right. And that, that goes way, 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 way back to Guido D'Arezzo from, you know, medieval music history. So right. Um, right. anyways, that's all, that's a whole other rabbit trail. It is. Uh, you mentioned community courses a second ago, Tim. It's important to note that Lowell Mason um, was not always in Boston. He went to the Savannah, Georgia area for a while, but came back in 1827 to be the director of the Handel and Haydn Society. Um, yeah, let's talk about Handel and Haydn because obviously we didn't know, I didn't know this until I started researching this hymn that mm-hmm. he borrowed greatly from Handel's Messiah. Exactly. Some might say stole, but we'll say borrowed. It sounds a little less... Uh, Musical borrowing is a complete field of, of uh, you know, musicology. So we're Yeah, good. and that, that's, that's what it is. It's musical borrowing. Um, and it was done in a very beautiful way, obviously. Yeah. The, the tune he created was timeless. But, um, so talk about his passion for Handel. Right, so... Um, the Handel and Haydn Society is like the oldest community chorus in America. It was started in 1815. Okay. And so the group really helped choral music to flourish in the 19th century, specifically in that part of the world in, in Boston. Um, but in 1857, there was That's, a- That was Boston with an accent, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. All right. Just making sure. Uh, just in case you didn't pick up on that. Right. Um, in 1857, um, the Handel and Haydn Society sponsored this choral festival. It had over 600 singers and they did the Haydn creation. They did Mendelssohn's Elijah and they did um, Handel's Messiah. And just think about 600 throats barking out um, the Hallelujah Chorus. I've sung all of those before and that would be, okay, so half of me says that would be majestic and half of me says that could be an absolute train wreck with that many voices. Uh, mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, as a choir director, that kind of scares the bejesus out of me. Yeah, I th- and I'm sure I'd like to think that these these groups back in that day were much more um, trained, and it wasn't just Bob off the street singing, you know, <laughs> creation. But right. but it's still a massive undertaking. Six hundred voices. Wow. Well, wait on this, man. In 1869, the Great National Peace Jubilee was in Boston. There were 110 choral societies, um, and there were let's see, 10,000 singers. Uh, and they sang the Anvil Chorus from Il Trovatore by Verdi. Um, they had 100 registered members of the Boston Fire Department on anvils playing in the, in the Anvil Chorus. So, 100? Yeah, 100 Good. anvils. Uh, 
So anyways, that's from uh, that's Kenneth Phillips directing the choral music program. He gives a little history on uh, Lowell Mason specifically. But uh, I just I mean, imagine 10,000 singers. Um, I don't know. It's just beyond me. What year was that? Did you say? Did you remember? 1869. See, so well before recordings, I would I would love to hear recording of that magnitude today. Right. I know we kind of chased a rabbit there away from George of the World, but I think that's just interesting knowledge that we don't always um, have at the forefront of our mind. That's okay. Rabbit trails happen on this show, and <laughs> and that's that's okay. So back to um, this tune particularly, which yeah. he ended up calling Antioch. What else can you tell us about that tune? Specifically, it's made up of musical borrowings, right? And Tim, you alluded to this a moment ago. Right. Um, we have two choruses from Messiah that make up the entire, almost the entirety of this work. Uh, now we're pretty familiar um, with the Christmas portion of Messiah, but not necessarily as much with the Easter portion. Um, right. The opening, um, da dee da da bum this this descending diatonic scale um, comes from "Lift Up Your Heads." Do you want me to play a little bit of that now so we can let everybody hear it? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it took four notes and we could hear Joy to the World. It was not like he even waited. He just, he was like, I like those four notes. I want those. <laughs> and, you know, he was, he, he loved Handelian music. And, the, you know, the Eastern Seaboard was performing Handel and Haydn and Mendelssohn in these large, uh, these large choral works. They took, they took English choral music across the pond and just brought it to the, you know, the Eastern Seaboard. Um, well, and that's, you know what, he knew his audience, like he, he was passionate about it. That was the area he was in. And so using that to write a, a new carol or to adapt, you know, Isaac Watts's text, which yeah. actually happened later, it didn't happen. Like he wrote the music and then he found the text. And so it was a little bit of a separation, but th he wrote it for his audience, like who he knew. Right. Uh, that's just called pragmatic. Yep, it um, is. It is. The other part, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy is actually taken from the introduction of Comfort Ye. It's the opening tenor aria. Right after the symphonia happens, we get bum, dum, da, da, dee, da, da, da. Let's listen to it, Tim. I, I love what I love when you discover those kind of Easter eggs. Yeah. Because it's just, it, it, it brings a smile to my face when all of a sudden I, instead of just saying, hey, that kind of sounds like Joy to the World, you can go, there's a reason it kind of sounds like Joy to the World. Like, like yeah. Lowell Mason loved, loved Handel. And so he was going to borrow from one of Handel's most prominent works. That's exactly right. Now, I could be digging too deeply into this, but there's great connection with the textual implication. Um, uh, from tell, us, tell us what you got. What, what, even if it's digging too deep, it's, there's nothing oh, too deep here. We'll go for it. Well, there's no way one of these works. But um, the Psalm 98 text that, uh, you know, we have the paraphrase from Isaac Watts. Um, and comfort ye and lift up your heads are all prophetic implications of Yeshua's coming and, and second coming. Yes. Right? Prepare yeah. the way for the king of glory. Um, lift up your heads, O ye gates. 
uh, and comfort ye my people, for the king is coming. Ironically, (laughs) (laughs) um, the uh, lift up your heads is from the Easter portion and comfort ye is from the Christmas portion. I don't know that Lowell Mason designed this to be a Christmas hymn per se, although we've adapted it as such. You could argue that for sure. Sure. Yeah, definitely right. I want to read Psalm 98. And then later, I'm going to have you read all the text to Joy to the World because we want to hear all the verses. But I think sure. it's important that we kind of just take a moment and and meditatively read Psalm 98 because it's so beautiful. It really is a, a motivation to the believer to sing out and to sing loud and to sing strong. Sure. Um, so Psalm 98 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Mm. I mean, that's just so encouraging. And there's nothing about it that says, if you feel like it, or when you have time, it's, yeah. it's a command. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. You, you reader, do this. Make a joyful noise. So, yeah, I just find that text. So when I read through that, as we were getting ready for this message or for this conversation, man, it was just encouraging and, and a reminder that we're called to sing at Christmas time, but throughout the year with joy. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. You know, um, I've got this book that I, um, that I was given, and it's called The One-Year Book of Hymns, 365 Devotional Readings Based on Great Hymns of the Faith. It's uh, Tyndale Publications um, and compiled by Robert Brown and Mark Norton. And the devotions are written by William Peterson and Randy Peterson. So you'll give me a link to that, and we'll put it in the show notes so people can find that for sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's an older text, um, but I think it's still, uh, you know, still relevant. 1995. Um, Absolutely. He says uh, that William and Randy Peterson say in their devotion, should we stop singing this song at Christmas uh, because it's not necessarily a Christmas hymn? And he says, not at all. This hymn celebrates God's involvement with his people. Yes. This work of God began at the stable in Bethlehem. At Christmas, we need bifocal vision. We need to look back and praise God for the glorious gift of his son, Jesus. But we should also look forward to Christ's return when God will bring a righteous conclusion to all things. Absolutely. Then we will begin to fully enjoy the wonders of his love for all eternity. Yeah, that works. That's really good. Mm-hmm. That's really that. good. I think I, I, there's a worship leader. Um, I remember him saying, to know where you're going, you have to know where you've been. Yeah, and, I heard that last week. That's ironic. Yeah, no, that's, but it's so powerful because yeah. that, that works in many different applications, but especially when you're talking about the gospel, when you're talking yeah. about um, the return of Christ, um, the first coming and the second coming of Christ, it's you have to look back and exactly. celebrate his 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 first coming in order to really appreciate looking forward to his second coming. You know, that's kind of like a Hebraic perspective. You know, I take a lot of um, uh, interest in reading about, uh, you know, the Hebrews, the Christian faith. And if you're thinking about uh, how a Hebrew views life, they're in like, if you think of a canoe facing backwards, they're paddling one direction, but they're looking back from when from whence they've come. 
So it's yeah. like they're moving forward, but it's because everything that's happened before them, and that's the direction they're going. I just think it's a really cool uh, picture to to see how we go through our faith walk. Absolutely, that imagery. We another episode we talked about the imagery in Holly and the Ivy, and using imagery to help us understand our faith is so powerful. Helps yeah. us. It helps us put put skin on the bones of it. Right. Right. So yeah. So this was so the the um, the text was written in 1719. The tune was written in 1839, and uh-huh. it really came into mainstream popularity in 1911 on the first recording with a lady named uh, Elise Stevenson and the Trinity Choir. Okay. And so that's really, and I, I have, was not able to find that recording, but that was uh, a source I found from another author, Ace Collins, uh, who, who had that in his text about the right. song. And so it's very much a, um, and we've talked about this some, we've talked about the, um, the, the biblical accuracy of the song is good, but the context in which we think of it is probably mis, misplaced, that it's not about Christ the baby coming. It's right. about Christ the king coming. It says that in the verse, let earth receive her king. Sure. So, sure. And, and, you know, like Philippians 2, 9 and 10, we see that that will be coming. That is on the way. It's on the horizon. Yeah, I mean, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've talked about the biblical aspects of it that, that, um, you know, celebrating his advent, his arrival, um, is, is, is key to our faith because Mm -hmm. we, we see that advent and we were talking the first episode of the series. I keep going back to that because there was that 400 years of silence, um, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the last time he spoke to his prophets wow. and when and when Christ came back. And there was so much time in there that was spent waiting and longing that we find that right now too. Yeah, this um, that 400 is very specific because you think about, you know, uh, a, a day is unto a thousand years, a thousand years is unto a day. You take that away, you have 40 years right? Uh, 400 right. years wandering. We have 40 days of fasting. Uh, and really that, that significance of 400 has to do with the freedom from slavery or the freedom from captivity. It's a liberating number, the number 40. Yeah. I like so, that because I just turned 40 this year. So I like that too. You are liberated. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, man, what else do you have for us on this song? I know you've done some well, great research. We've got, you know, I, I kind of went into the the different versions that we've got to play for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really interesting that we've related so much to Handel today uh, because one of my versions is by John Rutter. Um, and his specific version is essentially a Handel piece of music. I mean, it's just all out Handel. If you listen to the orchestra, the way it works, he uses the um, uh, a lot of the soprano aria, which is rejoice. Yeah. He uses a good part of the soprano aria, which is Rejoice Greatly, O Daughter of Zion. And you can hear that in the instrumentation. Um, can you sing first, a little bit of that melody for us to listen to when we hear it? Yeah, it's... Awesome. Okay, so we'll listen, we'll listen for that when we go into the recording. So verse 2 specifically... Uh, verse two and three are uh, are straight out handle. I mean, it's fantastic, and the way he's already honored the composer um, uh, of the hymn tune, Lowell Mason, uh, and kind of adapted it in his own and his own love of handle, John Rudder. 
Uh, it's just a fantastic arrangement. I love so let's that. listen to that version of Joy to the World arranged by John Rutter. That is magnificent. That is so great. Uh, what yeah, a yeah. wonderful arrangement. I love that. I mean, I think he, he, he paints it appropriately. You know, he has this really strong use of the tritone, right? Mm -hmm. um, no thorns infest the ground. Thorns infest the ground. The little minor, yeah, the minor uh, feeling that goes in there. Yeah. Ooh. And that thorny moment, right? Thorns infesting the ground. We get that out of Genesis. Um, it's actually... Uh, Watts talks about that in his in his um, uh, explanation of the hymn. That's actually not from Psalm 98. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The curse coming from, um, you know, Genesis. the fall of man. Right. You know what I found about that verse particularly, I found very interesting was that... Um, there have been versions of this rewritten, especially in verse three, yeah. that that change the theology of it to reflect the church. So yes. the idea yeah. of being cursed, for, yeah, <laughs> we can get into that, I think. Yeah. Um, so there are churches who don't believe in reformed or Calvinistic theology, which, hey, yeah. okay, that's fine. I, I, but I think that they've rewritten, I know they've rewritten it. So that, that line that says, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, was rewritten to say, wherever pain and death are found, he makes the blessings flow. A little bit less theologically, uh, there's a little bit less theological punch to it. Right. But I know hymns a lot of times textually adapt from, from era to era. So where a text is rewritten, sometimes it's just important to know why it was rewritten and to ask good questions about it. Because if it's rewritten to, to reflect the church's theology in which you're in, great, awesome. But know that. So, all right. So let's go to your other version, which by the way, as, as a, I was a brass player before I was a vocalist of any kind or, or worship leader. Me too. 
Yeah, right. Uh, and, and so this version you sent me, I got I got goosebumps because of the brass fanfare at the beginning. It's it's majestic. It's the only word I can so, think. Yeah, it's for three trumpets, horn, two trombones, bass trombone, and tuba. Uh, then you know percussion, harp, and organ. So there's have like, you have you performed this version or have you directed this version? Unfortunately, I have not. It's on my to do list. I mean. I uh, want to come sing in the choir when you do it, please. You got to get some throats and some serious brass players, man. True. Uh, but if y'all want to get excited about some Christmas carols, go listen to Julian Bachner and Trinity Wall Street. Uh, their album, Snow Lay on the Ground, of which we'll play this selection from in a minute. Uh, I just and we'll add, that, we'll add that link to the album in our show notes so that yeah. people can go click on it and go listen to it. So as, you, as, as we listen to this together, just listen for this idea of triumphant entry. Right. If we're talking about the king of glory coming in, this paints it perfectly, man. Yeah, agreed. Uh, uh, let men their songs employ. We've got this TTBB setting that takes you back to uh, uh, Peter Wilhowski in the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And then TTBB uh, stands for tenor, tenor, bass, bass. So double tenor, double bass, right? Yeah, or baritone bass. But yeah. Or baritone bass, okay. Uh, so, and then um, his blessings flow. Okay, and when I'm singing Christmas music with organ and brass and all gun slinging, I'm waiting for that soprano descant to happen, man. And as soon as that soprano descant comes in, when they bring in this unique melody that colors the rest of the thing, um, it just it sets me on fire. I love that moment in music. And you're going to hear that in this one because, again, we get this Handelian, yagadagadagadam, uh, these 16th mo uh, moving notes that double with the piccolo trumpet. It's fantastic. So. Um, just listen to those key points on this one because they're so much fun. Here we go. Here we go. Let's just, just jump in on it. was amazing and i love that tenor tenor baritone bass section that was so good the whole thing was great i want to i want to draw attention to one thing i heard lyrically though that was just yeah. what we were talking about uh yeah. the original lyrics were let men their songs employ and that one was rewritten and i've seen this one more let what was the text they used let, let all, all their all their songs employ which i'm all for i mean like to me it was written in the 1700s when women were kind of secondary in a lot of ways and so you know let all their songs employ is much more biblically accurate than yeah. than let men their songs employ so come on that's a good that's a great change <laughs>
Wow. Uh, yeah, I just I just love that version. You get a little organ interlude too in there. Julian Wagner is a fabulous organist. Um, I just love his stuff. He's a fantastic composer, arranger, and kind of brings a lot of cinematic elements to the yes. way he composes. Um, you know, we talked about John Williams, uh, I think before we recorded this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I just hear, you know, I hear some Superman theme happening right there at the beginning, you know? Oh, totally, <laughs> totally. And I just, his use of brass is, and you're absolutely right, you've got to have some brass players that are ballers, man. They got to yeah. know what they're doing because that is intense. Right. Uh, but it's gorgeous. Yeah, like I said, if you ever get to perform that, direct it, or sing in it, uh, call me. I would love to come be a part of that. Deal. Uh, I, I definitely would have to, I could vocally go for it. I don't think I could pick up my trombone anymore. It's been too many years. Yeah, me either. Uh, <laughs> Um, so we're going to switch gears to a couple yeah. of versions I have. Uh, and, and so, uh, I think to me, one of the cool things about my friendship with, with Dr. Roseberg with Chris is that we met not over choral music, not even over band music. Uh, we met because, uh, as, as college students, he pulled out his guitar and, and threw down a song, which if you're a guitar player and you hear the phrase cliffs of Dover, you know what that, you know what that song is. Um, <laughs> And he started playing it. And my jaw, after I picked it up off the ground, I was like, whoa. So we, we hung out and we played guitar. We did music together. Um, and so this version is actually one that uh, I'm not sure if you introduced me to it, but I definitely know it was uh, a version that we both kind of uh, just super enjoyed when we thought about guitars. This is by Steve Morse, who's the guitarist from Deep Purple. Um, and so this is Joy to the World off of Mary Axmas. this counter melody he does right here. It's kind of Eric johnson you know? Can I say that again? It's kind of Eric Johnson feel right there. Very like, much, very much. Ending, yeah. In fact, the first time I heard this, I thought it was Eric Johnson. I had to go back and see who the artist was. Oh, yeah. So, he does this wonderful thing at the end. In case you weren't impressed by his technical skill there, he uh, he actually shows you his scale work in just a minute, just to show you he knows every note on the neck. <laughs> a little bass solo. Not bad. I'll take that. just ridiculous man oh my goodness how many notes do you know all of them i play all of them that's ironically he has a song called too many notes 
That, you know what? Go look it up. That's a good one. And our final, <laughs> our final care will end with, uh, Chris, it's been so great having you on here, man. This has been so much fun. Obviously, yeah, just as a, as a friend having you on, we could talk music all day long. Uh, but to have an excuse to do it for, for a purpose of getting some information out and for sharing hope. But this is a version, uh, really, when I think of like a, a, a gospel choir, this is the version that, that, that I think of. And I love this version. I'm not going to play a lot of it because I'm sure most folks know it, and I'll leave a link to it. But this is Whitney Hughes. Houston, the Georgia Mass Choir. She recorded this version for a movie that came out called The Preacher's Wife, which is actually a yeah. remake of a movie called The Bishop's Wife. Yeah. Uh, so it's, but it's wonderful. And it goes through so many emotional highs and lows in the piece. To the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her key. You talk about a vocalist who just sounded effortless. Come on now. Yeah, just I love that when that when the choir comes in, it's it's I still get goosebumps and I've heard it a gazillion times. Yeah, we have church right then. Yep, that's exactly right. Exactly right. Well, man, Chris, this has been a, a super great conversation talking about uh just the the hope that we have longing towards the, the second coming of Christ. Um last question I ask all of my guests this time, and it's kind of an okay. off-the-cuff question. All Tell right. me your one or two top favorite Christmas traditions. When I was a student at Howard Payne, I got to be part of a service that we uh, we performed with a group called Heritage Singers called Lessons and Carols. Uh, it just celebrated its 100th anniversary in 2018, not us personally, uh, but it, it originated at King's College in Cambridge, um, you know, in, in, in 1918. Wow. Um, I've actually sung in that in that space and it's stunning, um, but being part of a lessons and carols service either on the conducting side or on the performing side is very special for me um i love the uh the contemplative nature of the service if anybody has not seen that they stream it on on your pbs station on christmas eve every year king's college has been doing it for 100 years <laughs> so um uh, it's fantastic service to be a part of um you know we um we celebrate uh as a family, um, in different capacities, um, we have a, we have a kind of a com- combination Hanukkah and Christmas. Okay. Uh, yeah. We, we celebrate the Jewish feast days as long as, as well as the Christian feast days. So, um, something really special about getting with my kids and lighting a candle and saying a prayer about Christ, who is the light of the world yes. um, and seeing the, um, you know, Christ being, uh, a lamp, being a light and, uh, equating those two and teaching my kids about um, the the true season and why we celebrate Christmas and how we're celebrating when Jesus was born. And um, man, it's just really special for me. Anything, anytime that I can have those spiritual moments with my kids, yep. um, it, it, it just comes full circle. And it's, it's my, it's my favorite thing in the world. I love it. I love it. I love those traditions. Uh, and the thing we always say is if Jesus walked this way, 
if this is what Jesus did, I want to walk the way Jesus walked. Well, that's good. Uh, and that's, that's just where we are. On I mean, we obviously have some traditions that we've put in place that are, that are from Christendom, you know, but um, uh, Jesus celebrated Yom Kippur. Jesus celebrated Passover. Yeah. And so we're going to do those things too. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Chris, uh, thank you, man. This is, I love it. I love all the conversation today and it's been fun to talk music with you. Uh, you continue to be an inspiration to me as a father and as a musician. And so thank you so much, uh, just for taking the time to be on comfort and joy with us today for our final episode for the season. Yeah. Awesome, man. It was such an honor to be here. I uh, love getting to talk with you. And as you said, getting able to, um, just unearth, things that we never knew before about, about carols or about, you know, about music, about, you know, it's just great connecting with you. And, um, uh, I really appreciate you bringing me on. Comfort and Joy was recorded at Torn Curtain Studios in Plano, Texas. It was produced by me, Tim Groves and Meadows Baptist Church. For more information and links to sources for today's show, please see our show notes. The theme music for Comfort and Joy was written and arranged by Dennis Lambert. For more info or to support him and his craft, you can do so on his Patreon account, and you can find that link on our show notes. Finally, remember to check out meadowsbaptist.org and join us for our weekly live stream services, Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Stay safe, stay hopeful, and remember, there is comfort and joy this holiday season, no matter what season you're in. Mm -hmm.